Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online, and I'm joined today by our senior reporter, Luke Haynes, and our news editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about the latest news affecting primary care over the past two weeks. Coming up, we'll be discussing the launch of a new campaign aimed at rebuilding general practice. We'll also be talking about the House of Common Health and Social Care Committee's inquiry into the future of general practice, which has held its first evidence sessions. Both of these feature prominent appearances from former Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt. We'll also be looking at how the NHS backlog is impacting on general practice, including a report from the Public Accounts Committee and the results of a recent survey we undertook. We've got a quick roundup of COVID-related news and finally, we'll be highlighting how the war is affecting GPs in Ukraine. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, this week saw the launch of a campaign to rebuild general practice, which is being led by the BMA and the General Practice Defence Fund and has been backed by former Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt. Nick, first off, can you tell us a bit about what the campaign is calling for? So the the campaign's focused on three key points, which are recruitment, retention and safety. And polling carried out for the campaign has come up with some pretty stark results. Nine out of 10 GPs fear that patients are not always safe at their practices. And seven in 10 believe the risk to patient safety is growing. And they point to the shortage of GPs in the UK and limited time for appointments as the key factors that are putting patients at risk. Um, In terms of recruitment, the campaign wants UK governments to deliver on promises to increase the GP workforce. So in England, that means the 6,000 extra GPs the government's promised by 2024. Although, of course, as we've discussed previously, Sajid Javid has admitted the government is not on track to meet that target. Uh, In Scotland, the campaigners say 800 more GPs are needed in the next five years. And Wales and Northern Ireland also need to find more GPs. On retention, the campaign warns about factors driving doctors out of the profession, so particularly burnout linked to heavy workload. And this pressure and the shortage of GPs obviously closely linked to patient safety. We've reported recently that GPs are currently delivering something like twice as many appointments as the safe limit defined by the BMA. Uh, And appointments limited to 10-minute slots simply aren't long enough for the complex patients GPs are often looking after. So alongside the recruitment drive, the campaign's calling for action to reduce bureaucracy, particularly in the form of performance management metrics and targets, so things like the Quaff. Luke, you went to the press conference on Monday when uh, the campaign was launched. What did former Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt have to say about it all? He had um, plenty to say. He spoke about the workforce issues within the NHS and expressed regret over his inability as Health Secretary to bring in 5,000 extra GPs that he famously promised. Um, he also acknowledged the crisis within general practice, um, pretty much agreed with all that Kieran Sharrick said um, beforehand about needing a big um, GP recruitment drive. But he actually went further than that and said that the government, quote, had its head in the sand, close quote, um, over workforce pressures and stressed how important it was that the health and social care bill, which is being discussed again in Parliament this week, um, I think it's the third reading that's happened on Wednesday, that it must include a requirement for the NHS and government to provide workforce estimates to see how many clinicians within each speciality, including general practice, um, the health service needs to recruit. Mr Hunt said that without this, the mistakes of the last decade around workforce um, and recruitment and retention could be repeated. However, one of the main points he pushed was around the importance of continuity of care, um, stressing that it would be a mistake to move away from it. So during this session, he said that general practice was moving towards the uberization of general practice, um, quite a nice way to put it, where you see a different GP every time you visit, just like you do when you hail an uber. 
He said that seeing a different GP on each visit couldn't um, be a good thing for patients or safety of care. And he expressed the viewpoint that he'd like to see GPs um, have their own list of patients again. Oxford GP Dr Rachel Ward, who is also speaking on the panel, agreed um, with Mr Hunt that continuity of care was important and she went on to say that um, it was better. It was actually better for some patients, such as those with mental health problems or those who have multiple medical issues, for them to see the same clinician. And she stressed that GPs also enjoyed seeing the same patients, almost following their journey, if you like. So just to say that I think it's quite important on revealing that Jeremy Hunt has spoken out um, about the uberization of general practice and the importance of continuity of care given that his colleague Sajid Javid and the current health secretary is pushing forward plans to effectively nationalise general practice and have GPs become salaried and, and work for hospital trusts. And one of the concerns around this and those plans is that it could be worse for continuity of care. So perhaps it could suggest that they're working to slightly different plans and could maybe clash on this at some point. Yeah, it did sound like a shot across the bowels for, for Sajid Javid from the former health secretary, Jeremy Hunt, didn't it? Luke mentioned uh, Dr. Kieran Sharrett there. I mean, he's deputy chair of the BMA's GP committee in England, and he gave a speech to launch the campaign, which painted a really pretty bleak picture of the current situation. He said that if the government didn't act soon to do something to address the workforce crisis, and in particular to look at how we can better retain GPs, every family who relies on the NHS will find their basic healthcare under threat. Nick, he called for the biggest recruitment drive that the profession has ever seen. What else did he have to say? Yeah, so Dr Sharrock called for a series of urgent measures to boost uh, recruitment to general practice. He wants to see the cap lifted on medical school places, uh, limits on international trainees scrapped, uh, and medical school places expanded. And he also called for investment in GP premises and other infrastructure, uh, as well as other forms of support for, for NHS staff. He, he called for Chancellor Rishi Sunak to use his spring budget statement to set out new funding to support these aims, but the Chancellor doesn't seem to have listened to that demand. And I think that the two things that stood out from Dr Charrick's speech were the stark terms in which he laid out the extent of the problem facing general practice and then the language he used to condemn the lack of support from government. He warned that hundreds of GP practices have already closed and he said that the scale of what he called an exodus from general practice actually scared him. Uh, and without urgent action from the government, as you mentioned, he said that families across the country would find their basic health care under threat as their local practices closed. But he, he suggested also that instead of taking the action needed to tackle this crisis, the government was actually taking credit for GPs' achievements during the COVID-19 pandemic while ignoring the greatest workforce crisis in the history of the NHS. So this was the launch of the campaign. What, what, what are they doing now, Luke? What happens next? So the campaign is going to be running for the next three months, I'm told, um, meaning that we can expect more from from this group. They've, they've said to me that they'll have more updates on their Twitter um, account and on their website. So we'll be keeping an eye on that and keeping readers updated and, and informed about what they have planned next. Um, but for sure, the campaign has already attracted attention from GPs while the press conference was covered by a number of national papers. So um, it's definitely in motion, shall we say. Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, if people want to find out more details about the campaign, they can visit its website at rebuildgp.co.uk and we'll put a link to that in the notes for this episode. 
Um, one of the things that's interesting about the campaign is that it's launched a week after the House of Commons Health and Social Care Select Committee held its first evidence session on the future of general practice, which is probably not a coincidence. The inquiry launched a couple of months ago with a call for written evidence, but it held its first in-person session last week. Of course, another theme between the two stories is Jeremy Hunt, who obviously now chairs the Health and Social Care Select Committee. He really seems to have the bit between his teeth on highlighting the problems facing general practice at the moment. Nick, how important is this Select Committee inquiry? The Health Select Committee doesn't set government policy, so it's not something that's going to directly change how the government runs general practice. Uh, But it's hugely significant that this prominent committee of MPs led by, uh, as you mentioned, a former health and social care uh, secretary who remains a major figure in the Conservative Party, uh, is focusing on this issue. I mean, it's obviously a forum that will raise the profile of issues facing the profession and in which GPs and others can give their views on some of the potential solutions. Uh, but we know that at the moment, uh, as Luke mentioned a minute ago, uh, that the government and Sajid Javid in particular is thinking about how and whether general practice needs to change. And he's talked about potentially extreme changes such as nationalisation and mergers with hospitals. So. I think that in addition to being an important high-profile forum, the timing of this inquiry, as much as anything else, makes it important. What sort of things were GPs telling the MPs on the committee? One of the lines we focused on from this session was a comment from Dr Andrew Green, a former member of the BMA's GP committee. And he said that a career in general practice was a marathon, but that doctors were currently being forced to operate at sprinting speed throughout. That kind of encapsulates the focus of the discussion in some ways. I mean, GPs giving evidence talked about it being impossible to deliver what patients need in a 10-minute consultation, uh, particularly given how the population of the UK has aged over recent decades and what this means for the increasing complexity that GPs are dealing with in each case that they consider in their consulting rooms. Dr Kate Fallon, who's a GP partner in Somerset, told the committee she was a six-session GP partner but often worked eight sessions because of the sheer volume of administrative work she has to complete. She mentioned 60 to 100 prescriptions a day, the same number of blood test results and dozens of letters. And she also talked about how hard it had been to recruit recently. She said that after losing a GP, they'd advertised, but it had no one come forward, whereas in the past she might have expected dozens of applicants. And the result of this, again, was that she and colleagues had to work additional sessions to fill in. Another factor uh, GPs raised was the denigration of general practice through the pandemic around access to -to face-to-face care, which is something we've talked about a number of times and the impact that that's had on uh, on morale. Luke, you listened to the the session following that, which featured RCGP Chair Professor Martin Marshall, Dr Kieran Sharrock, who we've mentioned from the BMA, and Dr Bex Fisher from their Health Foundation. They were highlighting some very similar themes to those mentioned by Nick, weren't they? But one point of interest was that both Jeremy Hunt and Professor Marshall backed scrapping the quaff. What did they have to say about that? So during the inquiry, Mr Hunt asked the question about whether GPs could follow colleagues in Scotland by getting rid of the quaff and replacing it with one or an initiative that focused less on uh, linking payments to specific outcomes, is is what he said. So just for context, quaff across um, the border was scrapped in 2016 with funding that was originally allocated um, to points being put into the core contract instead. And this was after the BMA and the Scottish government reached an agreement. So when answering Mr Hunt on this point, Professor Marshall said he agreed um, that the initiative or the COF was outdated and that the RCGP would support a move to scrap it. 
he said that GPs were seeing the downsides um, of, of the quaff after 18 years of it and um, said that it was bureaucratic and that the no trust approach was outweighing the benefits. Um, Professor Marshall added that any new scheme that could replace the quaff had to ensure GPs were given the freedom to use their professional judgment um, to prioritise patient care. And interestingly, Mr Hunt again picked holes in the quaff at the Rebuild General Practice press conference um, on Monday just gone but it was in the context of the partnership model. Um, so he said that the partnership model and the COF weren't compatible and that the COF was long past its sell-by date. Um, so just to explain on this point between uh, the partnership model and the COF not working together, I think what Mr Hunt was getting at was that the partnership model is all about innovation. It's supposed to allow GPs to be flexible and to manage their the needs of their patients um, as they see fit. Um, however, he suggested that the COF, which, um, as we've just discussed, is quite bureaucratic and rigid, almost works against the principles of the partnership model. Um, so again, Mr Hunt was suggesting that it was time to get rid of the COF in favour of um, another initiative. And just, to, just a note from, I guess, the BMA size, they or they or Kieran Sharrick said um, during the inquiry uh, last week that they didn't necessarily want to see the quaff scrapped, but just reworked. So it took into account things like deprivation and how this affects um, practice performances. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned deprivation there because um, the issue of health inequalities also came up. And um, in particular, there's some interesting comments from Dr. Bex Fisher about how GPs are funded and, and how that is actually contributing to health inequalities as opposed to making things better. Nick, what did she have to say about that? It's a really interesting point about flaws in how funding's allocated to general practice through the GP contract. Dr Fisher said that the so-called Carr-Hill formula, the the mechanism the contract uses to weight practice funding per patient, uh, is actually the root cause of underfunding for general practice in deprived areas. We know from some research that the Health Foundation published in 2020 that GPs in England's most deprived areas care for 10% more patients with 7% less funding. So there is a clear imbalance. And we know from national statistics that people in the UK's most deprived areas have a life expectancy around 10 years shorter than their counterparts in the most well-off areas. So Carhill took effect when the new GMS contract was introduced in 2004. And Dr Fisher said that before that, deprivation payments GP practices received that started in the in the 1990s had gone a long way towards easing the funding gap for deprived areas. But the Carhill formula ignores deprivation and it weights funding heavily on the age of patients. But, but as Dr Fisher pointed out, despite plenty of evidence that deprivation is linked to demand for healthcare, the life expectancy gap means that in areas of high deprivation where fewer patients reach older age, the formula effectively bakes in funding inequality. We'll be keeping an eye on what's going on with that inquiry and obviously we'll be reporting on any other sessions of evidence uh, that are held in the House of Commons. Moving on, last week we ran a couple of stories looking at the NHS backlog and how it's impacting on general practice. Nick, one of those was about the publication of the Public Accounts Select Committee's report on the backlog. What did it have to say? This report accuses the government of overseeing a long-term decline in the National Health Service. It makes the point that we've discussed before about the NHS waiting list rising sharply long before the COVID-19 pandemic arrived. And it highlights again the knock-on impact that this has on GP services. 
It says that more than six million people waiting for hospital treatment, including hundreds of thousands waiting more than a year, pose a huge risk to primary and emergency care. And it makes clear that general practice needs support to uh, to cope with this. And it is yet another reminder for the government that dealing with the NHS backlog depends on making sure that primary care and general practice can cope and providing funding to support that. Um, And it very much echoes the talking points from the campaign we've talked about earlier, as well as the Health and Social Care Select Committee inquiry. Whatever the government does, it won't be able to claim it isn't aware of the problems facing general practice or that it hasn't been warned about the multiple knock-on problems that 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 will create. But alarmingly, the Public Accounts Committee warned that the government has no real plan to turn investment in the health service into better outcomes. And Emma, actually, you wrote the other story about the backlog this week based on some findings from a GP online survey. So what was all that about? Yeah, that's right. And it did really show the pressure that practices are under. So we got responses from 322 GPs and the vast majority said that their practice was dealing with increased workload as a direct result of the backlog, which included huge amounts of work being transferred inappropriately from hospitals. So 92% of those GPs said the backlog had led to increased work and 81% said that the practice was experiencing inappropriate transfer of work from hospitals. Now, we know that inappropriate transfer of work has been a, a problem, a big problem for years, but most of the GPs responding to our poll said that the levels they were seeing now were higher than at the same point a year ago. So it seems to be something that's getting worse. A number of GPs described the situation in general practice as as unsustainable. GPs said they were having to provide more appointments, both face-to-face and online, as a direct result of the backlog, as well as dealing with massive amounts of increased admin. You know, in terms of what that actually means day to day, GPs said they were having to provide patients waiting for treatment with additional support, such as managing pain and other symptoms, as well as dealing with mental health problems, including anxiety and depression that were occurring as a direct result of the delays. So that's a massive increase in work just there. But then they also highlighted that they were facing increased abuse, hostility and complaints from patients who are frustrated by delays being seen in hospital and also appointments being taken up by patients asking for their referrals to be expedited or chased up when there wasn't really anything GPs could do to help. But on top of all that, many GPs highlighted that they're being asked by hospital doctors to carry out tests, prescribe medication and effectively manage patients that a lot of them felt really should be under the care of specialists. They're also dealing with things like issuing sick notes relating to recovery from hospital treatments, dealing with patients being sent back to them to be re-referred onto a different hospital department when hospitals could really be doing this themselves. And this is all stuff that must be really frustrating, I think, because I think it's really important to be clear that GPs are not being paid for this work. None of this sort of work is covered by what they're paid under the GP contract. So there's no additional resources to help practices to deal with all of this. And this is on top of the fact that a lot of GPs are finding that their referrals are much more likely to be rejected now, which is something we reported on earlier this month. You know, with many GPs being pushed down this route of using advice and guidance services instead, where they then have to get advice from a specialist on what to do, which then often means they end up with even more work to do after that. I mean, one GP who responded to the poll said that the relationship in their area between the hospital and general practice was the worst it had been in the 31 years they'd been a GP. So I think while it's hospitals and their waiting lists that are getting all the headlines in the national press, the survey really does show the kind of ripple effect this has and how much it impacts on the rest of the system, you know, and in particular general practice, which is people's first access point into the NHS. And obviously the real worry now 
is that this is only going to get worse as the waiting list continues to grow. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a grim situation, but I think the um, perhaps the good news is that uh, you know it's not just the likes of us reporting on this sort of issue at the moment, but it's also committees of MPs in prominent positions who do perhaps have the ear of the government to an extent who are really highlighting it as well at the moment. So you know perhaps that could trigger change down the track. Yeah, I think it's definitely important that there's some recognition that you know it's not just hospitals that are dealing with it; it's kind of everything around the health system that's having to deal with it as well. Right, moving on. Um, While the government is keen for us all to believe the pandemic is over, COVID has very clearly not gone away. Nick, case numbers are on the rise and this is having an impact on the NHS in terms of staff absence as well, isn't it? Yeah, COVID cases are rising fast across the UK. In the week to 17th of March, for example, England saw an increase of 58% uh, in terms of cases compared with the previous week. We're back up to around 100,000 cases a day UK-wide again. And this rise has come fairly swiftly after the ending of restrictions uh, from the 24th of February. And meanwhile, LMCs are reporting that the rise in cases is increasingly leading to GP practices facing shortages of staff with people forced to stay off work, so compounding workload pressures for general practice. And the other factor with this is that numbers of people in hospital with COVID are also rising fast again and are now up to more than uh, 16,000 UK wide. So there's no doubt this is driving up pressure on the NHS again and before the health service has had a chance to make any kind of headway on tackling the, uh, the NHS backlog. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um, and just quickly, some other COVID news that um, has happened over the last couple of weeks. The spring COVID-19 booster jabs got underway this week. Uh, these are the second boosters for the most vulnerable people, which includes all of those aged over 75, anyone aged 12 and over who is immunosuppressed and all those living in care homes for older adults. People should be receiving those boosters six months after their last booster. Now, NHS England has said that primary care network sites are not expected to lead on this campaign, but some sites, and I'm I'm sure some practices will obviously be involved in this work. Um, vaccinations for healthy children aged 5 to 11 were also due to begin from April, but at the time of recording, there's no detail on how this will work. But again, it seems likely that PCN sites will not necessarily be heavily involved with that. Um, and finally on COVID, we're also still awaiting news on what will happen to staff testing from the 1st of April, when, as we know, the government is intending to phase out free access to PCR and lateral flow testing for most people. Um, in its Living with COVID-19 plan, the government said free symptomatic testing would remain available after this date for social care staff and a small number of at-risk groups. NHS England has said that further details on testing for NHS staff will be provided. But as yet, and while we record, we've not seen it. So so do keep a lookout on GP Online because obviously we'll report on that as soon as we have that information. Finally today, I just wanted to flag up a piece on our website written by Luke, which is an interview with Dr Pavlo Kolesnik, who is a GP and educator in Uzhgorod, a city in the west of Ukraine. Luke, your interview with Dr Kolesnik is going to be on the podcast next week, but perhaps you could tell us a bit about the article you've written and what he had to say. Yeah, sure. Um, So I was fortunate enough to speak to Pavlo over Zoom, who gave me a really good insight into the situation in Ukraine in terms of their attempts to continue to deliver general practice while the country is at war. He told me that his city, um, Ushgorod, uh, has seen large numbers of refugees passing through it um, over the last last few weeks or so. And um, they're also taking up residence in, in hotels and temporary accommodation. So just pretty much anywhere that they can get their hands on at the minute um, as they move from their, their homes. 
Um, for context, the city where he is is in the west of Ukraine and shares a border with Slovakia and Hungary, um, both are EU countries, so it's a relatively safe spot for now. Um, but with this mass movement of people, obviously comes increased medical need. Um, so he told me that a third of his patients um, are that he's seeing are refugees, and he said that these people are also coming with uh, different sorts of medical needs. Um, so, for example, he said that patients from the centre of Ukraine um, with they often had, well, some of them often had thyroid problems because of their close proximity to Chernobyl, which, um, as most people know, was the site of a nuclear disaster in the mid-80s. Another issue for them is is a lack of medication. So he described the challenge of treating diabetic patients without insulin because the normal supply um, chain um, has been disrupted and they've obviously had an influx of people into the area. He also mentioned that trainee doctors are being drafted in to help out at shelters which have been set up across the city and they're helping to triage patients and act as, a, I guess, a first point of, um, of reference. But he said that burnout was becoming a, a real issue as well as seeing more patients and working double hours, he said the warning sirens that are going off at all hours of the day um, to alert people about potential rockets flying overhead, um, it, he said it's really affecting staff just because it's contributing to fatigue and it's disrupting um, sort of sleeping patterns. And obviously it's just a terribly frightening situation. Um, so yes, the full interview is on the website and we'll have a podcast going out next week where um, you can hear our full conversation. Thanks, Luke. And we'll put a link to the story that's on our website in the description for this episode. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much to listening and thanks to Nick and Luke. We're back next Friday with that interview with Dr. Kolesnik. Until then, you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice, as well as accessing clinical education and a whole range of articles on careers and other professional issues on our website at gponline.com.